Well, we're going to look together this evening at words found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. It's the second of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This Sermon on the Mount is a, a wonderful sermon, bringing together so much teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're the words of the Lord. They're the words that he speaks, which are full of spirit and of life. He spoke with authority and not as the religious leaders of his time. They are absolute truth. And here, early on in his ministry, Jesus has gathered his disciples in the company of others. The crowds are there too. And he is speaking to them. And uh, people are listening in and they're seeking to understand uh, what he's saying and what it means to be one of his disciples. He's seeking to encourage his people and to teach them God's way with them and uh, to show them what it means to be spiritually alive, which is very different from being religious. Uh, it's a totally different experience and most of the people had only understood what it meant to be religious. And one of the great conflicts of Jesus' ministry was with the religious teachers and authorities of his time. And uh, perhaps we too uh, have known something of religion, the practice of religion, but we have not necessarily known God dealing with us in our hearts and in our souls. And Jesus is in these Beatitudes describing the Christian. What is a Christian like? What is the experience that a Christian has? He says that these things are blessed. They're a source of true happiness. They're signs, they're evidences that God is at work in us. So these Beatitudes are not a command telling us what we need to be, but rather he's telling those who have committed themselves to follow him what their experience is like, what they feel, what goes on in their hearts. And in many ways, it's strange because he says, for instance, in the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are Christians are conscious of their spiritual poverty. But he says, though they are spiritually poor, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or he speaks in the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Again, hunger and thirsting, longing for a heart righteousness which they do not yet know and a longing for it passionately. And he says that that longing will be satisfied. And you know, often we don't talk about the spiritual experience that we have as Christians. People might say, well, how are you? And you'll reply, and then they might say, well, how are you spiritually? And you might say, well, I'm rejoicing. And that's good. And uh, I'm being kept. And that's good. Um, but we don't often speak about our conscious sense of poverty. Our longing for a righteousness, a consistent righteousness that we do not know. We don't speak about that sadness, that mourning that we experience inside as believers. And so I want us to think of this beatitude and and of how Christians mourn. Why do they mourn? What is the reason for that mourning? Understanding its nature. 
and then to ask you to say, do you know anything of that in your own spiritual experience? And if you do, you may feel anything but blessed. And in fact, you may feel totally unworthy, and you may feel a failure. And you may have been a Christian for a long time, and yet there's still that sense of mourning in your heart. Now, not all mourning is blessed. Sometimes we mourn because our, our selfish desires are not fulfilled. Uh, we sang that hymn, The pleasures lost I sadly mourned, but never wept for thee, till grace the sightless eyes received, thy loveliness to see. And people are mourning, they're sad because they can't do what they want to do. An example in the Old Testament of that, a tragic example, is Ahab, King Ahab, the king of Israel. And uh, he wanted a vineyard which was near his palace. And it belonged to a man called Naboth. And uh, Ahab went to Naboth and he said, look, I want to buy your vineyard. I'll give you a good price for it. Or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard as good as it. But uh, Naboth said, no, you know, this, this vineyard has belonged to my family for many generations. And I don't want to sell it to you. And uh, we're told that Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth wouldn't sell the vineyard to him. And he lay on his bed sulking and refusing to eat. And then his, his wicked wife, Jezebel, came and said, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? And uh, he said, well, because Naboth won't sell me the vineyard. And uh, well, she decided that Naboth should die. False accusation was made and, and Naboth died. You know, that mourning of, uh, of Ahab is not unique to him. There are many people who are unhappy because their own desires aren't fulfilled. Sometimes children can be sulky because they don't get what they want. And adults can be like that too. And there's no blessing in that kind of mourning. It's carnal, sinful, and evil. But there are other forms of mourning that are signs of spiritual life. One of them, for instance, is a, a genuine sadness over the, the state of the world around us and the lives of the people around us and their, their evident rejection of God. And uh, believers often weep because of ungodliness. In Psalm 119, the psalmist writes, streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. It's easy, isn't it, to become... Uh, accustomed to the way things are, not to feel uh, the sadness and the wrongness of those who reject God. Um, but godly people feel it. An example of that is Lot, who lived in the, the city of Sodom, where there was great evil. He was a righteous man, and we're told that he was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul, by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. He was troubled by the state of the society in which he lived, and of course a judgment came upon them. Uh, or, or Nehemiah, as he hears about the terrible conditions in Jerusalem when he is in Persia, he, he is secure, but he hears that uh, the people in the land of, of Israel are in great need, and the city walls have been broken down, and the gates have been, of Jerusalem have been burned. And we're told, I heard these things and I sat down and, and wept. I wept at the, the judgment that had come upon my people and the state of my people. 
And he says, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. What do we know of that kind of, of mourning? Our Lord himself, when he saw Jerusalem, wept over it. And he said, but you, even you, had you only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. In fact, our Lord is described in the Old Testament as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And one reason for that was because of the ungodliness and the rejection. How often, he says, would I have gathered you and you would not. And he mourned over that. So there can be a sensitivity on the part of a believer at the deep spiritual needs of those around us. The fact that we live in a city where the vast majority of people do not know God and of the state of our nation, and does it move us to tears and to mourning? Uh, it's a sign that a person is a Christian when we feel those things acutely. And of course, sometimes the mourning is, is due to our loss of a loved one. We're in sorrow. We've been bereaved. And uh, we are conscious of loss and deep loss, and we weep. Someone we have known and loved has died. And uh, we feel the loss of them. That's something that had happened to Mary and Martha, uh, friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, close friends of his. And their brother Lazarus died. And Jesus wasn't there. And eventually he came. And uh, Martha went out to him and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Uh, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And then Jesus makes this great declaration, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I do. I believe that you are the Messiah. Here, here are sisters who are in need of comfort because their brother has died. And they feel that things could have been different if, if only... The Lord had been there, but he says, no, I've come. What's he come for? He's come to comfort them. He's going to raise Lazarus from death. A man who's been dead for four days, he's going to say, come out, Lazarus. And Lazarus comes out, and he's alive again, and he gives him back to the sisters. And Lazarus's resurrection is a, a thing, an event that points forward to the resurrection that is found in Jesus Christ. Uh, when we, we mourn, we do mourn, but we have a hope, a hope in Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. And we know that the one we love, though they are dead, they are in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and we are comforted in the knowledge of that. The tenderness of the Lord Jesus Christ when he came into contact with people who had been bereaved, uh, was very striking. He goes into the room where Jairus's little girl, 12-year-old girl, lies, and she's died. And uh, he takes her by the hand, and he says, Talitha, cum, little girl, get up, arise. He sees the parents grieving over their only daughter of 12 years old, and he, he comforts them. Or the widow of Nain, who Jesus meets as she is coming out following the, the funeral procession of her son, her only son, and she's a widow. And uh, we're told that the Lord saw her 
And when he did, his heart went out to her. And uh, he said, don't cry. Don't cry. Because he's come into that situation. What a blessing it is. She thinks that the worst possible thing has happened. And no one can help her. But Jesus does. And he tells the bearers to stand still. And he says, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And all these things were signs pointing forward to the greater resurrection that will be experienced by all who are in Christ. And as the people saw Jesus raising the widow's son, they said, God has come to help his people. He's come to comfort. And we go through sadnesses. Perhaps you've experienced sadness, the loss of someone you love very deeply. And uh, it's great to have the encouragement of friends and family who speak of their care for us and their prayers. But no one can comfort us in the face of death, that last enemy, as the Lord Jesus Christ can. He's the Lord of life and love and he comforts those who are mourning. And so there are experiences of mourning that believers have in which there is comfort and there is encouragement. But perhaps the main focus of what Jesus is saying here is a, another kind of mourning. It's that mourning which comes from a broken and a contrite heart. It talks about a personal sorrow over our sin. It's a very strong word. It, it speaks about mourning which is expressed in tears. There's always something deeply moving, isn't it? Isn't it? When we, we see someone weeping in sadness, moved to tears. Perhaps people who don't often cry, but they, they express their sadness by their tears. It's not a gentle, sentimental sadness. It's poignant. It's piercing. And it involves intense sorrow. It's being broken-hearted. In fact, we could translate this beatitude like this. Blessed are those who are moved to bitter sorrow at the realization of their own sin. That, that's a distinctly Christian experience. As we see our sin, we, we see our sinfulness not only as outward acts, but the sinfulness of our heart and that constant struggle that we have with our old nature. It's linked to that poverty of spirit uh, in verse 3. And it's linked to that intense desire, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, a deep longing for righteousness. Because knowing that we are sinners and being convicted of our sin are two different experiences. The Bible says we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And we may say, well, yes, I realize that we're all sinners, aren't we? And uh, yet there's no real sense of our sin, no conviction of our sin, no awareness of what it means. When David confesses his sin concerning uh, Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Uh, he's become conscious of his sin. It's rather like somebody who is getting into debt, they're spending money above what they have, and they know that 
things are getting bad, but they're not very conscious of it until one day the bank statement arrives. Or there's a letter from the bank saying, we'd like you to come in and discuss your financial situation. And suddenly, something that's been on the periphery of our thinking comes to the fore. There's a debt. There's a debt that we owe, and we've got to pay it. And in spiritual terms, conviction of sin is not just simply saying, well, I know I'm a sinner, but I feel my sin. And I mourn because of my sin. And uh, Jesus, uh, David rather, knew that he had sinned, but he wasn't convicted of it until Nathan came and confronted him with it. David tried to cover his sin. He tried to evade the consequences of what he had done. But Nathan comes and he says, you're the man. Suddenly David knows what he has done. He faces it and uh, he is broken by it. And it's an experience that Christians have when we first come to faith, when we become deeply conscious that we are sinners and that sin has consequences. Augustine says that he grew more wretched as God drew nearer. And you know, sometimes God is at a distance, isn't he? We're not conscious uh, that he is the one to whom we must give an account. But then we come to that point where we know that we've got to deal with our sinfulness. We've got to find forgiveness. And we're mourning, and perhaps we're weeping over our sinfulness. Not necessarily openly and outwardly where others will see us, but inside there's a deep unhappiness, a lack of satisfaction with us, and a lack of peace, and a sense that one day we shall have to give an account to God, and we have no answer to give. And uh, we feel that we can only be condemned by him when we stand before him in judgment. You think of some of the people who came to Jesus during his ministry. Uh, That woman, for instance, who came to him when he'd been invited for a meal in the house of Simon the Pharisee. And Simon is there, and Simon's a Pharisee. And he knows nothing of mourning because of his sin. He's a very religious man. He feels he's very righteous. He feels he's better than other people. In fact, he's not only sitting in judgment on the woman, he's sitting in judgment on Jesus. Because this woman comes into Simon's house. And we're just simply told that she had lived a sinful life. In other words, she was notorious in the community. And then she learned that Jesus was eating there. And she went and she brought with her an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. She's broken-hearted, she's mourning, and she's come to Jesus. Now, Simon would have said, it's a bit late, isn't it? Should have thought of that before. You can't put right what you've done now, and uh, I'm all right. I'm a very, I pray 18 times a day, I fast two whole days a week, but we know what sort of life you've been living. And there would have been no comfort for her from someone like Simon. Religion doesn't comfort us, but the Lord does comfort us. And uh, Jesus tells Simon, you know, when I came into your house, you, you gave me no water to wash my feet, you didn't anoint my head with oil, but this, you didn't greet me, but this woman is so different. Therefore, her sins, which are many, have been 
forgiven. That's a comfort which the Lord Jesus Christ brings to those who are overwhelmed by their sense of sin. And, and the Gospels are full of examples of people, either literal examples or in the stories of Jesus. You think about the, the parable about the two sons and the younger son who goes away, takes his father's money, and he goes as far as away as he can and he, he lives it up. He does all the things he wanted to do and he thought he would find pleasure in them, but it isn't long before he's run out of money, he's run out of friends. There's a famine in the land and he's hungry and he's got no one to go to and nowhere to turn. And Jesus says then he comes to his senses, he sees what the real situation is and he realizes that he has sinned against his father, he sinned against heaven and, and he feels overwhelmed by that. He's lost everything. He's got nothing. And there's only one place that he can go, and that's back to his father. And he's got to go and confess his sins. And that's what happens when we mourn because of our sins. We want to acknowledge that we've done wrong. Not, not minimizing it. Not, not saying, well, there are mitigating reasons why I've, I've done what I've done. But just simply saying, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's the kind of mourning he's speaking about. It's a godly sorrow. And he goes back. And uh, while he's still at a distance, his father sees him, has compassion on him. And uh, he runs to him. And uh, he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. And it's quite obvious that this boy doesn't deserve that. But he's comforted. There's that personal comfort. There's that acceptance by God. Have you ever known that? Coming to God out of a deep sense of your failure and your sin and your broken hearted. And then you see God as this gracious father running. His heart goes out to you and he comforts you. And uh, he says that this son was lost and is found. He was dead and is alive. And uh, he calls for a celebration. And it's so different from the older brother, who when he hears that there's a celebration, there's music and dancing, he says, what? I didn't know that was happening. Why? And they say, because your brother's come back and your father has received him and he's rejoicing. And again, you see the difference between religion, because the older brother says, well, I'm not going in there. I'm not going to rejoice over him coming back, that no good brother of mine. So there's no comfort from the brother, the brother was said, well, you, you should have thought about that before you left home and uh, before you got into your sinful ways and all the terrible things you've done, all the immoral ways you've lived, too late now. That's what religion says. But God doesn't say that. He, he receives us in our brokenheartedness as we come to him conscious of our sin. Uh, he doesn't despise, David says in Psalm 51, the contrite heart, that broken heart. He, he understands that, that that's the, the source of all spiritual life. As David begins that psalm, his cry is for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's against you, you only, that I have sinned, and I've done what is evil in your sight. 
So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David is being honest. He's saying, I can see myself as I really am. I can see my sinful heart and I can see that you are righteous and holy and I have no right to your love. But I'm pleading with you. I'm asking for your mercy. I want you to treat me as I don't deserve to be treated. And he says, I could offer a sacrifice. I could look in the law and say, what sacrifice needs to be offered? But he said, that wouldn't be the right thing to do. The sacrifices of God, he said, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. It's as we see ourselves in the true light of what we really are before God, as we see ourselves as God sees us, as we mourn, he is the one to whom we can go to find comfort. Have you ever gone to God in that way? One of our hymns says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Those who mourn because of their sin have nothing to bring, nothing that they've already done, nothing that they're promising to do, empty-handed, but finding in God the comfort that we need and the grace that we need to meet our needs. And it's similar for a Christian who has lost their way, who's slipped back, who's lost that real love for the Lord. Because we return in a similar way to how we came in the beginning. It's possible, isn't it, to become lukewarm towards God. Going through the motions, half-hearted, careless in the way that we live. And I think it's very easy for us in a, a world which is materialistic, a society which is materialistic, to be very comfortable in our religion. We're still going through the motions, but we're not wholehearted in our service for the Lord. And there are signs of that. And we, we've lost the love that we had for the Lord at first. Where is the blessedness I knew, the hymnist says, when first I saw the Lord. Is that true of you? Tonight you're here, you come to church. Um, but you aren't what you used to be. You've slipped back. Uh, like the church in Laodicea, you become lukewarm and uh, you need to be restored. You need to be convicted. And you say, well, no, I, one day I'll sort it out, but you don't do it. And uh, you don't find yourself seeking God and, and experiencing his grace again and his forgiveness again and knowing your love being restored. And it's similar to what David had to do. His sin regarding Uriah and Nathan was a, a sin of a believer. And it's frightening to see how having committed that sin of consigning Uriah to a dangerous place in battle so that he died, and then pretending to care for his widow and covering his adultery and taking her as his wife, and the child is born. Do you just see this man who is a man after God's own heart? That is what he is by nature but yet he can live this double life. Day to day he's carrying on as if everything is right between him and God, but it isn't. And God knows. He knows what's going on in David's life. He's grieved as he sees this man, this man who writes such moving psalms and speaks about God's dealings with him in the most wonderful ways, but he's a stranger to God during those months. He's walking at a distance. Is that a description of you? You're situation might not be identical to David's, but you're walking at a distance. 
You don't really love God as once you did. And God knows. And uh, God sends Nathan, the prophet, to David. And and Nathan tells him the story uh, about a a rich man who wanted to give food to to friends who were coming. And instead of taking one of his animals, he takes this ewe lamb from a man who is poor and only has one ewe lamb. And he gives that uh, to his friends instead. And uh, David says, that's terrible, he's angry. That's strange, he, he himself is walking in conscious disobedience to God and yet he is ready to mete out judgment to a man who's taken a lamb. And he's taken the life of Uriah, he's taken the wife of Uriah, and he's living a double life. And uh, Nathan just simply says to him, you're the man. This is a story about you. And the Lord knows. And David is confronted by his sin and he confesses it. And backsliding Christians, Christians have lost their way, need also to know that mourning about our sin, the way we have failed. And uh, David returns to God and he speaks about the blessedness he experiences. In Psalm 32, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And there are people who have professed faith, been baptized, become members of church, and then they simply slipped away. Uh, Or they carry on attending, but it's just an outward thing. And what they desperately need is that mourning about their situation that drives them back to God for his forgiveness. That indwelling sin, that battle that goes on in us all. And all Christians have a battle between our old nature and our new nature. Paul describes it in the epistle to the Romans. And he he says, so I find this Lord work in me. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another Lord work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through our Lord Jesus Christ. And every Christian has that conflict and that battle. Before we're born again by God's Spirit, we just have one nature. But the moment we are converted, we have a new nature. And the result is we don't always do what we want to do. We have that ongoing conflict. And uh, we are defeated again and again by certain temptations. We make promises, but we don't keep them. And it it breaks our heart. Does it break your heart if you're a Christian this evening? Because you long to do what you delight to do, to live in fellowship with God, pleasing him in all you do. And yet you fail again and again. You fail in the same ways again and again. And uh, like the apostle, you feel wretched. And you feel you need to be rescued. And Jesus is telling these disciples, well, that's your experience. The world doesn't know anything of that. The non-Christian doesn't know anything of that, but you do. But he says that those who have this inward conflict, this mourning, are blessed. Because they will be comforted. And you and I need that comfort from God in our daily struggle with our old nature. How does God comfort the brokenhearted? Well, he, he pardons, he forgives, he justifies, he adopts into his family. 
Uh, it's almost too good to be true, and we struggle with it. And uh, Jesus spoke about many examples of people in that, ex in that situation. About that tax collector, for instance, in his parable, and he came into the temple, and he could only come into the outer court. He was a man who had made a conscious decision to serve the Romans in order to be wealthy. Tax collectors are wealthy people. He'd betrayed his own people, and uh, he lived in a big house, and uh, they, the Israelites rejected him because he was a traitor, but he was perhaps content with what he was doing. But now this man has realized where he is. He's no longer thinking of what he's gained. He's thinking about what he's lost. And he stands at a distance, and Jesus says he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Ever been in that position? Knowing your sin, being broken-hearted by it, and all you can do is cast yourself upon the mercy of God. You've got nothing to claim, nothing to offer. You've got this empty hand. And Jesus says that this man, rather than the Pharisee that he describes in the early part of the parable, this man went home justified, put right with God, because those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This man, that day, was put right with God. He was forgiven. Uh, he was experienced God's grace and kindness to him. God put it right. The vilest offender, one of our hymns says, who truly believes, that moment, that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. He's not put on probation. It's not a question of saying, well, we'll see if you really meant it. This man does meet it. He's, he's overwhelmed with mourning and with sorrow. But he's comforted. He's comforted by an experience of God's grace. And whether we need to experience that for the first time or to experience it again as we return to God, that's the comfort that is there for the, the broken-hearted of knowing peace with God, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are able to say that the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do because my Saviour's obedience, his perfect life and his blood hide all my transgressions from view. And it's only those who are broken-hearted who are driven to God to ask for his mercy. And when believers fail and fall, there's comfort too. You remember how Peter met with his risen Lord on the shores of Galilee one morning. Peter had failed Jesus. He couldn't even admit that he was a disciple of Jesus, even though he'd been so confident that he would stand for him whatever the pressure. Even though I have to go to death with you, I, I will not deny you, he says. But he does, not once, but three times. And, and as he does that, the Lord looks at him and Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. Have there been things in your life that have been great crises of failure? Peter has this great crisis of failure. And then he's there. He's already seen the Lord, but it hasn't dealt with the issue. But that morning, Jesus deals with it. And uh, as they finish eating, he, he speaks to Peter. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That's what Peter said. They may fail you, but I won't. Do you really love me more than these? And uh, Peter says, yes, Lord, 
you know that I love you. That's the struggle of the Christian. Peter really loves Jesus, but he fails him so seriously. And no doubt he didn't want to be asked that question. In fact, as Jesus asked him that question three times, Peter says, Ow, that hurt that you keep on asking me, do you love me? But Jesus is dealing with Peter's problems, thoroughly setting him free from that which would have weakened him in his following of the Lord and his serving of the Lord. And he knows, needs to know that he's been thoroughly forgiven. And after each question, Jesus says something similar. He says, feed my lambs. You have failed, but there's a work to do. And there's a restoration where the Lord restores fully and finally. And it's an amazing thing. It's a complete restoration. The people in Jerusalem knew that Peter had failed. They were talking about, you know what Peter did? On the night that his Lord was condemned, he, he denied that he even knew him. Some sort of disciple he is. And you might have thought, well, Jesus would say to Peter, well, you've been restored, but I think it'd be good if you, you walked quietly for a while. You, you kept out of public view. But six weeks later, Peter is the main preacher on the day of Pentecost. He's no longer confident in himself. He's experienced the comfort and the grace and the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we fail. And uh, we're grieved by our failure. And we need to be restored. We need to be comforted. And, and that's what Jesus did to Peter. And Peter went on serving the Lord faithfully, still with failings, still with weaknesses, but living out his love for the Lord. Do you know something of that contradiction? You do love the Lord. You genuinely do. And yet at times you look at your life and you think, is that a life that reveals my love for the Lord? The devil tells you it doesn't. And we struggle with this inconsistency. We don't do the good we want to do. We don't do the things that we delight in. And it's a distinctly believer's experience. That's why it's blessed. It's a sign of God's work in us. And also there's comfort when we fail. Of course, the greater comfort is that he will, at the end, receive us into heaven, the reward of his grace. Because when we're overwhelmed with our, our failure and we're grieved by it, you think about heaven, you think about judgment, and you wonder, will I be able to stand in that day? In Matthew 25, Jesus a number of times refers to that day and he talks about servants who've been given gifts to use and uh, when they use those gifts in a good way, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And you think, yes, that's what I want to know, that there'll be a share of the master's happiness. You see, it's, it's the reward of his grace. It's his grace that has dealt with our sins. And it's our acceptance in Christ that gives us that confidence. Or later in that same 25th chapter of Matthew, as the sheep and the, pe the people are separated like sheep and goats, and Jesus says to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. You see, it's that comfort of knowing that in that day we shall stand 
because the Lord will enable us to stand, that God's begun a good work in us and he will carry it on to completion. And when people say, well, how are you sure? You say, I'm not sure of myself. Not at all. But I'm sure of him. There are times when I feel I'm shipwrecked in my faith. But I know that he has taken hold of me and he will never let me go. Now Wesley's hymn is a wonderful hymn. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head. And clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne. What amazing words. Throne of the living God. Boldness. And claim the crown through Christ my own. So those who have struggled through life, struggled with their sin and their failure, are blessed because they will be comforted. And one day there will be no more sin. And uh, we shall love the Lord with an unsinning heart and know all the blessings of his salvation. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this question, and with this I close. What is your only comfort in life and death? What do you find comfort in? Here in this world and when we leave this world. And this is the answer, it's a lovely answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly father not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. And that confidence, that comfort, comes to those who are conscious of their sin and failure, are honest before God, and whom Jesus says are blessed. And if you're a Christian tonight, you have that battle, that conflict, that's part of your daily experience, the inwardness of sin, and the longing that we might love God as we ought, and live for him, and please him. So Jesus speaks to his disciples at the beginning of their life with him and says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Amen. Let's sing together our closing hymn. It's uh, number 566. 566. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know the struggles of our hearts and of our souls and that constant accusation that we feel from the devil when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us this night and abide with us always. Amen.